And we're live. Hey, everyone. It's uh, David Barnett from davidcbarnett.com. Good to see you all. Um, and thankfully, Rocky was able to join. Oh, I got a... There we go. Shut that guy off. I'm, I'm watching it on YouTube because the... There's a delay. Well, I'm watching it on YouTube on this other monitor because there's always uh, a discrepancy in the likes. So there's already seven people that liked it over on YouTube. And uh, and the likes are important because today we've got an incentive. It's called the reindeer incentive. We're going to get into that in a minute. But, you know, one of the biggest parts of the holiday season, Rocky, is gift giving, right? It can be. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? With with everything going on this year and all the busyness in my business and, and everything that has all the different opportunities and and new things that have been going on with uh, with this virus going around, I had an opportunity to give myself a gift. Would you like to see it? Sure. All right. Just a second here. I got to find it. I'm going to play it. You ready? It's going to be awesome. I'm David C. Barnett, and you're tuned in to Small Business and Dealmaking, the podcast, YouTube channel, and blog, where I talk about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses while controlling risk. So if you're looking to take control of your future through buying a business one day, or if you already own a business and you're looking to grow or exit, you've come to the right place. I talk about interesting things, I talk to interesting people, and I answer your questions every week right here. So be sure to hit like, and be sure to hit subscribe, and let's get to it. What do you think? Nice promo video. I well, it, yeah. I mean, I um, I actually got an opportunity because there's a, you know, the film and television and stage show productions go happen around here, but with all of the things that have been going on with uh, you know rules on public gatherings and things like that, the people that do that kind of stuff are looking for work, and so I had the opportunity to work with a you know a real video guy. Um, we spent a day and I reshot a bunch of the landing page videos and the intro for my show. Um, and I, I'm really pleased with the way it turned out. It's looking good. Yeah. It's well, the, <laughs> let's guys, uh, I want to, I'm glad that you were able to come here today, Rocky, because, uh, Rock, for those of you that don't know, Rocky's been on the show before and you've talked about the Michael McCallowitz profit first methodology, because you are a profit first coach. And um, for people that don't know anything about that cash management system, do you want to give us a little snippet of, of how Profit First works? Sure. Um, here's the reality. Most business owners don't look at their financial statements. And I don't blame them. They're not accountants and they don't want to be. Profit First is designed by entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs with the simple goal of ending entrepreneurial poverty. And basically what it does is it's a cash management system. Most entrepreneurs look at their bank account and go, is there money? Can I spend or do I need to sell? Right. It's a simple right. question. What Profit First does is set up multiple bank accounts, each with a purpose. And so the first account is how much money came in. So, you know, hey, this is how much money I've collected. The next account is for your profit because profit comes first. Profit is a habit, not an event. And so we put money into the profit account and then you deserve to get paid because if you don't get paid, the business is not going to thrive. And so we put money aside for you to get paid. And then there's that pesky thing called taxes. 
And so we make sure that we save for taxes so that when tax time comes, we face our accountant from a position of strength. How much is the check? Let me stroke it. And then the last bucket is your actual spending. So how much can I truly spend in my business after I've been profitable, paid myself and covered my taxes? And that's basically what the system does. You you just send your money to where it belongs and then you truly know how much you have to spend. And and what you're saying about how entrepreneurs oftentimes will manage their business just by looking at their bank account. I mean, I've seen this firsthand where people will have a great year, they'll be flush with cash, then they'll think that they can go off and spend a bunch mm-hmm. without understanding that there are liabilities that the business faces that aren't revealed yet, like like taxes owing and things of this nature. And it's only when the books get done that we know what these final amounts might be, and then the cash is left. And so I, I've seen people get into trouble. I really enjoyed the book. Um, and I mean, I, I live and breathe financial statements. I'm, I'm always looking at this kind of stuff, but I know that there's a lot of value. And so you and I met because of the Profit First stuff. I think that I came on your show and, and you came onto my YouTube channel. Um, but you have another podcast. And uh, quite frankly, you know, since summertime, for a lot of my walks through my neighborhood, I've actually started tuning into Richer Soul. And do you want to tell us a little bit about that one? Because it, it's, it's, it is, it's for entrepreneurs, but it's a different kind of, of program. Yeah, it's a totally different take. So once you've got your money figured out and you build your financial wealth, most entrepreneurs think that's it. I've hit the jackpot. Life is great. And once you do that, you start to find out, hey, there's a lot more to life than just this money piece. And so what we do on Richer Soul is we examine all the other parts of life that you need to talk about. So first and foremost is your purpose. Is your purpose of what you want with your life and business aligned. The next thing we talk about are mindsets. Are you Mm. looking at the world, the problems, everything with the right frame of view? And do you have that nagging voice in the back of your head always kind of challenging you? So it's kind of quieting that intruder that we all have that brings in the self-doubt. And then it's the simple things, right? Health. Too many people give up all their money or all their health to gain money, and then they give up all their money to get their health back. We look Mm. at time. It's a very finite resource that we don't normally measure. We look at our relationships, whether it's with your employees, your spouse, your family, you know, from a referral standpoint, what are the relationships that we're building? We look at spirituality and how does that fit into everything else? And we figure out how all of these different areas merge in with our money as well. And how do we create harmony across all these different areas? And we constantly have very successful people on, they tell their story of where they started, how they conquered money, and then they bring whatever specialty and area of expertise they have in any of those areas to the forefront to, uh, to help us all grow and do a little bit better. It, it it sounds like maybe um, did you face a certain amount of existential crisis at some point in your background? Is this what gave you the the idea to go forward with this kind of show? It, it wasn't an existential crisis. So from the time I was a young kid, I was like, I'm going to be a millionaire. Yeah. And so that's what I chased, the money. And I, I got the money. And then I looked around and went, huh, 
this didn't deliver everything it was supposed to. We were told, go make money and life will be perfect, you know, do these things. And I found that it wasn't, it didn't deliver what I expected. And so at that point, it began the search for what are all these other things and how do we really create a life of abundance? It's interesting because I was watching um, someone, uh, it was a, a, a research kind of guy on YouTube. He was doing a, a lecture. It was an evolutionary psychology kind of talk. And they were talking about emotions in particular happiness. And they were talking about how people will do a lot of things to try to chase the state of happiness. Mm -hmm. And what, what the evolutionary psychologist was, people were talking about in these different, it was a meta study of different reports. What they were talking about is how uh, emotions evolved to serve the greater human purpose to further the species and have us survive. And so they were talking about things like when you gather together with your tribe, with your friends and your family, and you're having a meal together and you're, or with your loved one and, and all these different things are happening and you feel happy, it's because evolution has brought us to a point where we want to have those moments not that the happiness is the end, but by having those happy moments with the other people, it leads us to better survivability and the ability to pass on our genes and more successful families and tribes, et cetera. And I thought it was, it was very interesting because like you just said, I've, I've known people who have said crazy stuff like, oh, when I get the five bedroom house with the ensuite, that's when I'll be happy. Mm -hmm. I'm like, what? Like that you're, you know, that, that, that's not, doesn't make sense to me the way I was raised, but some people, they get these ideas in their head somehow, don't they? You, you, you think it's just materialism, materialism driven by media and advertising, that kind of thing? It is. I think a big part of it is materialism driven by those things. I mean, you know, we were told go to college, get a good job, you know, buy a house with a white picket fence and two kids and a dog and you'll be happy. Yeah. And that's not always true. Because a lot of people pick the wrong track to even follow. They they pick something because somebody in their family said, you need to be a lawyer or a doctor or, hey, you're really good at X. You should go do it. But nobody asked, would you enjoy doing that? Mm -hmm. So there's a, there's a term that I've come to learn. It's from Japan. And I always probably pronounce this wrong. It, it's called Ikigai. And Ikigai is the, the merger of what you love to do, what you're good at, what the world needs, and most importantly, what they're willing to pay for. Mm. Right? The last two are key, aren't they? <laughs> the last two are key. And so when you can find that perfect merger, then it's like they talk about tap dancing to work, right? You are doing what you love and enjoy and are good at. And you're having fun and you're serving the world. And so they're throwing money at you. And that is truly, I think, what, what you should chase. And I think a lot of the problem, and we talk about this a lot on the podcast, the things that we should learn are not taught in school. So, you know, nobody has a class in school to find my purpose. Right. Right. Nobody has a class in school how to get rich how to build wealth. And, and a lot of times those words have negative connotations. You know, when, when I talk about profit first, it, it has a negative connotation. 
money for many people have a negative connotation. So that's part of what we try to do on Richer Soul is say, hey, money's just a tool. Why are you putting all these emotions into it? And so I think it's just learning how to be human. I think we've forgotten how to be human because everybody's staring at a screen. Yeah. And the simple things that we used to do in life, like growing our food and and learning to to cook it and sitting down and having that meal like you talked about, being part of a community. We were designed to be part of tribes, but today most people don't have a tribe. They don't have those units. It's no wonder they feel so stressed because they're not living kind of the way that nature did. And part of this problem is parents, right? Because mm. parents don't tell kids go out and be happy. Parents tell kids go out and take a safe route. And well, it's route. interesting. It's interesting <laughs> because because of the stuff that we talk about and because of the topics you're having on your show and other stuff that I listen to, I, I'm actually much more cognizant of this with my own kids. Because number one, I you know, I'm I'm 46, so I'm a Gen Xer, and I think that I'm one of the first groups of people that went to college because of the program you talked about, go to college, get married, have the kids. So I went to the college and I studied and I saw people dropping out because they weren't studying what they enjoyed. I saw people flunking out because they didn't have the aptitude to be there. I saw people get full degrees only to go back to university a couple of years later for an entirely different degree because they realized what they really wanted to do was something else, right? This guy I know, Steve, he's got a biology degree and an engineering degree, and he works in engineering, right? And so I've seen the waste. I've seen people spend years and tons of money on this stuff and end up going nowhere or having to completely pivot. And now I'm getting to the point where my kids are 12 and 12 and 13. So I know that their college years, the college age is on its way, but I'm already saying to them, like, it's not necessarily part of your plan. Like, you know, you have to figure out what you want to do. And I'm perfectly cool with the idea of them taking a couple of years to figure themselves out before we, you know, make all that time and dollar investment in, in sending them someplace, which may not be the right thing. So I recently had a podcast episode on this. I think it was uh, Gary Langston. He and his wife, what they basically do, he was actually doing leadership in companies. And then he realized, hey, wait a minute, why aren't we teaching kids leadership? And so now what they do is they work with high school students and they sit down and they have them go through a process of defining what are your skills, what do you enjoy doing, what do you want to do, and then creating a plan forward so that they're picking a college if they pick college, but they're picking a path with intentionality mm. instead of just following the herd and doing what you're told. And so... I think that's super important because as college has gotten expensive in the United States and honestly, for a lot of people, I don't think there's any return on the investment. And unless you're going, I mean, even if you're going to be a doctor, if you go read all of the, the chat boards from doctors, they'll tell you nobody asks a doctor where they did their undergrad. So right. why are you wasting money on an expensive undergrad when nobody cares? And it's those types of things that you have to have clarity on. If you want to be an engineer, you have to go to college. If you want to do computer programming, 
You don't need to go to college. If you want to be an entrepreneur, the worst place for you to be is in college. <laughs> and yet, it, it, yeah, no, no, no. You're, you're, you're telling the truth. And, and the thing is, is that, um, you know, I, I heard somebody who was on an, another program I was watching and they were referring to the fact that they didn't think that a university education was actually an investment. They, they actually called it a luxury consumable. Because they were saying a lot of the young people who are headed that towards college, they're not actually thinking about the ROI of the investment. They're saying, I want that experience. I want to go away for four years and party and have fun and make friends and connect to a network, right? And, and you know, I, I hey, listen, if you're wealthy enough and you want to spend money on that, go ahead, right? But, but I, don't, I don't think it's something you want to borrow for. No, but let me ask you a question. How many kids go to college and say, I want to do it for a network? Well, I don't think that they have that kind of outlook at that point in life. And, and so you're not even building the network. And even if you go to the college, even if you go to an Ivy League college, there's no guarantee that you're going to be in the right place with the right people unless you're very intentional about that. I, I think in today's world, what I have learned is if you want to network with Ivy League, you can do it without going to an Ivy League school. You just have to go be intentional on networking. I agree 100%. In fact, I was I'm actually thinking about this um, because when I went to university, I went to Bishop's University in Southern Quebec, and I was in the business department, and I, of course, met people there, but I wasn't thinking about building a network while I was there. Um, and so my extracurricular activities were in other domains of interest of mine. And it's only been since, you know, decades have gone by that I, I use that connection on LinkedIn in particular, where I'll, I'll find somebody and I'll see that they went to Bishops too, maybe not even the same years, but I'll send them a connection request. I'll say, Hey, I see you went to Bishops as well. I was there in this year. And, and I'm finding that it's, I'm, I'm using the little, I don't know, stamp in my passport of life to more value today than it, than I did back when I was there. And, and to the, to your point, you know, yeah, kids aren't thinking about that. They're, they're not. No, they aren't. And, and back when we went to school, there was no Facebook, there was no Google. You couldn't go and Google who were my classmates to go, who should I even connect with? Yeah. Right. How do you even know? And that's part of the problem. And, and I say to people, look, if you want to go and enjoy life and spend $200,000 on a party, get a better party. <laughs> I mean, seriously. Um, we have, we've got a comment here. We have Victor. Victor's over in the UK. He says, hi, David. Hi, Rocky. I think icky guy is good and meaningful, but it isn't possible for everyone to have all of that. There are jobs that need to be done and are not enjoyable or nice to do. And, and I think that there's value here because, you know, understand that not everyone's going to be an entrepreneur, run a business, all that kind of stuff. There are people that are going to need money for their needs and at different points in their life. I mean, myself included, there have been several points in my life where I needed money. And so I went and took a job and it wasn't necessarily because it was pursuing my life dreams, but there's that ability to make an exchange there, right? Uh, to serve whatever purpose my life needs at that moment. So I will say this, and, and this may be hard for you and I to believe, okay. but there are some people who love to clean. 
right? There are some people who love to be a nurse. There are some people who love to do different things that you and I and others would think is drudgery. But somebody out there actually loves that. And so I think that's an important thing is is to to understand that. Some people love to iron, right? Well, this Not is a picture. Thing. This is a picture from my Instagram feed. And I was <laughs> ironing my shirts and I posted it up there because I like to make them perfect, Rocky. Yeah. And it, it's for me, that's drudgery. So here's what I used to do when I wore shirts like that. A, I buy no wrinkle. And two, they came immediately out of the dryer and right onto a hanger. And so I never had to fuss over it. But there are people like you who have a different outlook and a different mindset. And it's just, I think that's what we come back to is mindset is assuming that everybody isn't like us. So, you know, you've, have you ever heard the story of the, the bricklayers? Yes. All right. Yeah. And so that's the, but, but you should tell the story because some people I, may and, not. And, and I probably will butcher it wrong, but there is the, this, uh, man comes up and he sees these bricklayers and he asks them what they're doing. And the first one's like, this is drudgery. I'm out in the heat. I have to carry these bricks and put them in a pile. He goes to the second one and he says, well, what are you doing? And he says, well, I'm building a wall, right? And this is what I do for a living. I enjoy this. And he goes to the third one and he says, what are you doing? He says, you know, I'm building a cathedral to God. Yeah. And so it's just the outlook of what is it that you're doing? What are your goals? What are you trying to achieve? And it's the outlook of how you look at it. For you, ironing is not a chore. It's fun. And so that's cool. And you're probably very good at it. And people will pay you for that. <laughs> well, I don't know if I necessarily want to make it a career. but I yeah. <laughs> And that's a choice, right? You don't have to. But And, and the other thing is, you know, when we're young, sometimes we have to do things we don't want to to get to the point where we can do what we want to. And so, yeah, there's a path for that. And also, I think moving forward, people are going to have like a lot more of that stuff is going to be automated. Right. Yeah. So ironing will be something that goes away. Those routine, boring tasks, little by little, are going to get replaced. So, I, you know. I think you're always going to have people doing them because they can't see the bigger picture. So they've limited themselves. Well, you know, we're, we're talking a little bit about these existential life desire goal type of things. And I know that somebody who also has a big opinion on this kind of stuff is actually uh, Mike finger from uh, ExitOasis.com. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just noticed that Mike joined the green room. How are you today, Mike? I'm excellent, sir. Uh, uh, Merry Christmas to you both. Thank Merry you. Christmas. Merry Christmas to you, too. Um, I, I have to express before you start, David, a little disappointment. We are uh, 23 minutes into the show and I've only seen your promo video once. We're going to get we're going to get a couple more shots of that. Right. There's all kinds of stuff I made for today. Don't worry. <laughs> and and I've got over here on my other screen. I I've now have three monitors. Uh, one of my goals, of course, is to make my office look like the bridge of the Starship Enterprise. And so I've got on, over here on one side, I have a monitor where I'm watching the likes on YouTube because, Mike, when when you shared on LinkedIn that that you were going to be here today, yeah, um, I put in there. What do you remember? What my comment was? I don't. I said there'd be a fifty fifty chance a reindeer might show well, up. Yeah, yeah. No, okay. No, I recall that. Sure. 
Yeah. So I know I remember how much you enjoyed that photo I took the other day oh, last that, year. That, that, I found I, I found the antlers. Excellent. And so so here's what we're gonna do is if we can get to 50 likes on YouTube, I'll wear the antlers. <laughs> how do we make that happen, David? We we Rocky, just have to who encourage, do you know? We have to encourage people to hit like. We have to encourage people to hit like. Um, Mike, uh, did, did, have you met Rocky before? I don't think I have, sir. Rocky is a profit first practitioner and works with different businesses. Mike helps business owners prepare their businesses to get ready to sell. Mm. And I know that if some of those people had Im implemented some of those profit first techniques, they would probably be a lot easier for Mike to work with. We're probably covering very similar ground, Rocky. We are. Well, so I help them be profitable so you can get them a much better multiple. <laughs> At the end of the day and a bigger, because, you know, when you're selling a business, it's about good books. And when you can show a potential buyer, not only is this how much I got paid, but here's how profitable I was. And then there's the secret sauce. All those things that you pay for in your business that are kind of a benefit to you. We track that. So you can say, not only this is my profit, my pay, but here's all the ways that my benefit, my company benefited me and provided me value that you really can't see in the books easily. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we have a few more comments here. Eric is saying uh, there are all kinds of people that like many different things, backing up what uh, Rocky was talking about. And then uh, Cherie is in the audience here today. Hi, Cherie. Says she just liked the video. Thanks, David, for all the great content this year. Thank you guys for, for watching. We're up to 19 likes already, if you can imagine that. So now, I got David, my eye on just, it. Don't just worry. Just to be clear on your promise, if we hit 50 likes at any point in time over the next couple of weeks, those ear, the, the, those antlers are going on, right? No, it's it's got to be during this live broadcast. We're, we're trying to juice the algorithm here. So, <laughs> so when it comes to being on YouTube, you have to learn about this kind of stuff. And I begrudgingly go and I watch articles and stuff. And so if you get likes while you're on live, what happens is the algorithm starts to let people, other people who may not have ever watched the show, who watch other stuff like about the topics we talk about, it might show this to them. And so this is how we grow the audience. I so, like it. Yeah, I like it. And your audience has been growing, sir. You've had a good year. It has been a very good year. And um, I kind of set myself a target of 20,000, you know, with my fingers crossed. And I'm at yep. almost almost 19.5 right now. So, yep. so things are going really well. Congratulations. That's great. Um, Carl says something interesting here. High school students are not receiving enough information about entrepreneurship as a legitimate career path. They are told it is risky, 80% failure rate hard work, stick to a safe path, etc. cetera. Um, they are being influenced by teachers in a system that knows nothing else. It's interesting because I've had, um, in one of my uh, relationships a few years ago, I was dating a woman who had two teenagers who actually told me that their teachers at high school told them that if they didn't go to college right after school, that they would basically end up on a, on a bad path, that they wouldn't end up being able to earn much money, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the things that I pointed out to those two young people is I said, listen, you're talking to people who have a vested interest in the educational industry. They, they, they have gone through education. They've gone through teacher's college or university, and now they're back in it. And if they don't in stoke demand for higher education, 
what it does is it invalidates and reduces the value of what they've been working for their whole lives. And that, that framework of understanding, I think, is missing, especially from a younger person that just doesn't have a lot of experience. I'm the, uh, I'm the counterpoint on this one, guys. I'm a fan of higher education. I'm a fan of the, uh, uh, of the opportunities that exist there. I have seen students, including my own daughter, get there and blossom and see it as a uh, incredible target-rich environment as she explores want, what she wants to do. So it's, uh, I, hear, I hear the points you're making. If you're a I, I've often wondered, I've, you know, I've spoken at entrepreneur classes and I've often wondered if what I should say is, if you're serious about this, what in the world are you doing here, right? I mean, we know there are certain paths that yeah. may not be well served if you know where you want to go. But I think as a general rule, most don't. And in, in that case, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big, I'm a big believer of the, uh, here, here's, here's laid out in front of you um, a thousand different topics that you can explore. Let's see which one you feel passionate about. Let's see which one resonates for you. Which Let's see which one doesn't feel like work when you're doing the homework. Um, I, I love that. I, and I, I understand where Mike's coming from, but in today's world, if I want to go to MIT or Yale or Harvard, I can hop online and I can take the class. Now, I won't have a test and an exam unless I pay a couple of bucks, but even what you pay for that is a fraction. I can go explore a million things without having to pay Harvard, which is what yeah. I prefer to do. Um, there is a certain thing for being in a place and in, in, in experiencing a situation. I just think what they're charging for that experience doesn't always outweigh the benefit. So if you can find a, a less expensive way to explore that, and that's what I would love for kids to have a less expensive way to explore that and be able to test it out without spending six figures, because not everyone's going to be able to get a return on it. If you can stroke a check and you want to do it for your kids, have at it. You know, that's wonderful. I think there's a lot of people who would benefit from being in an environment where they're actually get to experience that and not have to pay a fortune for it. And, and there, oh, go ahead, David. Well, I was just going to say, I know that there are several websites out there that uh, call themselves like open source MBAs and, and things of this nature, where they basically lay out a, a series of links. And it's if, if you read all these books and you attend all of these online available classes, you will have built yourself the equivalent of an MBA but you won't have the diploma, right? And so, so the, the question then is, is, is in the marketplace, how are employers or the customers of business owners gonna to respond to this? Because I'll tell you, as a, as a greedy capitalist employer, if I had someone come to me and say, I puzzled together a free MBA, and I would think to myself, hmm, this person, claims to have all the knowledge, but they don't have the debt, maybe they'll work for a little bit less, <laughs> right? And there will create, they'll create an opportunity for themselves. And without that debt service, they'll probably be further ahead than the person who borrowed the money. Perhaps, but let's let's face the, the fact that the future is unfolding before us. And now the only uh, employment test you need is a mirror to hold up to their mouth to see if they're still breathing. 
and then they're a viable candidate for for our position. So well, it's, it is, uh, I guess, in twenty twenty one. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's that's awesome. We've got we've got a few more comments here. Um, uh, Cherie says, Carl, more people, including high school students, should be taught the value of buying a business. It has an eighty percent success rate. Uh, certainly better than the starting one. And uh, Carl says, I'm Gen X. Buy and build businesses for a living. Last 15 years, best career ever. Very financially rewarding. Yeah, I can see that too. Way to go, Carl. Um, awesome. So, what, David, what that that eighty percent number must uh, must jangle in your head a little bit. Well, it's hard to know, right? But I, I, you know, of the businesses I sold when my brokerage office was open from the end of 08 until 2011, five years later most of those were still operating. I had this plaque done up that used to sit in the waiting area of my office and I found it in the closet and I went down the list and there are more of those businesses that are no longer operating, but it's been 10 years now, right? Sure. And, and you know what, how do I feel about that? Well, I, I still feel okay about it because when we talk, when I talk about buying small businesses, I talk about the fact that they're still a very risky asset class you can't pay more than a couple multiples of cash flow because of the uncertainty in their future, et cetera. And so for these businesses to last five to 10 years beyond, and I don't know the reasons why some of them have closed, um, you know, those are the risk concerns that a buyer has when they go and they do a deal. And they're always worried about that. And if, if you take those considerations into mind when you're making your deal, then you should be able to protect yourself from that risk, mitigate it at least. You know, somebody who pays 10 times cash flow for a business and it closes in five, within five to 10 years, that person obviously is going to be on the losing end of that deal. Right, right. Yeah. And, you know, not a bridge between the topics we were on saying that every student should go to college um, it, it is just plain wrong. Saying that everyone should buy a business is just plain wrong as well, right? Because it's a... Uh, uh, it, it's about value. If you're buying value, then I absolutely agree with the statement that uh, it's better to buy than to build. Um, well, and there's there's an aptitude consideration too, right? Absolutely. I mean, it, it's just not for everyone. That is, that is not a concept that's widely taught is to buy versus build. And it's something that I've been hearing a lot more lately and, and it's because trying to get a business off the ground and to the point of being successful is is a long and hard journey. It's a lot easier to buy it once it is successful than to go through the struggle of building. But I don't think that's a well, it's one of those things that you guys know, but I don't think that's well taught or well explained to others. And most people go, well, how am I supposed to buy a $2 million business? And I saw Keith Cunningham did a wonderful YouTube of how you buy a $2 million business for a hundred grand and how you, you finance it and how you pay it back and do all of that. I think that's kind of an, a, an eye-opening shocker for people. And then the other thing is buying a business that's appropriate for you. Hmm. Again, if you don't enjoy it or if it's not within your thing and you're just buying it to make money, kind of where we started earlier is you end up in the wrong place. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I kind of got into depth in one of my, uh, my 2019 books, Smarter Than a Startup. I, I got into a little bit about why culturally we have this bias towards business startup versus acquisition. And I think it actually has, it comes from sort of a, the pioneer heritage 
in North America, at least, where, you know, all these people who like set off and they started farmsteads and homesteads and ranches and like everything was about planting your flag and doing the work and building something up. And I think part of that still resides under the surface in the culture. And so if you go to a bookstore, you're going to find like long shelves of books on every different kind of startup you can imagine and a small handful of books on business acquisition. And I think it's changing. I, I think the fact that we have this baby boomer demographic that's retiring is creating headlines that is drawing attention. Mike, I know you and I have had a video before we talked about the gray tsunami and why it may or may not pan out the way people are assuming. Yeah, but I think there's more attention. I mean, there are now conventions for people called search funders where they'll go and they'll have speakers and there are investors that want to put in money and stuff like this. So it's definitely a growing thing. Um, and it just makes me very thankful that I started my channel back in 2014. <laughs> That's very true, David. But again, as you and I both know, most of the businesses that are for sale aren't going to meet those criteria, right? Yeah. They're not, they're not going to come to the cream of the crop. And, and so even if you believe in uh, buy over build, um, you better be ready for a, for a heavy duty search because uh, buying a business that has value uh, that can be transferred to you is a unique and uh, uh, it's a unique challenge. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, cause you've been in that, you've been in that hunting party, haven't you? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I still am. I can't, how do you shut that off, David? How, how, do, how do you not look at the listings that pop up in your area or or come across? I don't know how many brokers have me on their list and I get the email uh, post of their latest listings. And the, 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 the curse of not having a thousand lives to lead, right? That's true. We are at 22 likes on YouTube. So we're not, we're not. Come on, people. There. Hit your thumbs up, guys, if you're watching. At 25, do we get half an antler? No. Like... no. All right. You sound like one of my kids. You're trying to negotiate. I taught my kids to negotiate everything, thinking it would be a good skill for them in life, and now I have to negotiate everything. <laughs> well, you weren't specific in your promise. <laughs> so, David, what about for you? What are you seeing uh, in 2022 for the... Uh, buy a business market you're seeing big changes you anticipate your 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 uh, your buyers are going to need to do things fundamentally differently um i like the the people that are in my adventure group coaching program for instance continue to have the same level of success as since the group has started the what is interesting uh, I was on a presentation call a couple weeks ago, and it was the people from Biz Buy Sell, the online marketplace. They were doing a presentation with the statistics from their marketplace and um, and the survey that they do of business owners who are not part of their marketplace. And it was very interesting. One of the key things is that the average value of the business that is sold in Q3 of this past year is more than double what it was pre-pandemic. And so what does it mean if the average price doubled? It means that the smaller businesses aren't selling. So the ones that are more likely um, suffering an impact from what's been going on with, with the pandemic, they're, and this was something that I, th I thought was going to happen when the lockdowns occurred, is that if people have a business that suddenly is performing poorly, they may close it, right? It might not survive. 
Um, but if their performance goes down, they know that they're going to have a hard time selling it. So they, what they do is they retreat from the market and right. they just say, I'm going to keep going and I'm going to wait until things improve before I try to sell it. And so I still think that there is a pent up demand for exiting that is growing out there and that some entrepreneurs know they can't get into the market right now. Some of them have to because of some sort of pressing personal concern forcing them into the market. Yep. Those are the people that are going to try to do a deal, even if their numbers aren't great. But I know that there are people on the sidelines waiting for things to improve. Interesting. Interesting. And your buyers, are they feeling that uh, as well? Do they, are, do they see a fundamental difference in the listings that are available or? Well, the, you know, I, I don't encourage people to buy underperforming or distressed businesses. I encourage people to buy profitable ones. They, well, well, but there's a caveat to that, right? Because if you, if you already are in an industry and you have maybe one or more locations or whatnot, like you're in a better position to look at acquiring something that's not working very well, right? right. Be because you can bring other solutions to bear in that scenario. Um, and so it really depends on who you are. Like the, the idea that businesses are worth different things to different types of buyers is, is certainly valid. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean people who can do more with that business are going to pay more for it. Right. Because they're, they're going to realize that what they bring is part of the value that they should enjoy. Absolutely. I've bought businesses in the past that were broken in a way that I knew I knew how to fix. Mm -hmm. And that, but to your point, I certainly didn't think that that meant I should pay the, the seller more because I had that skill set walking through the door. Yeah. Well, and, and that's just it, right? Um, the sometimes I'll cross paths with people who are more familiar with valuation of like publicly traded stocks, for example. And, and when you're looking at a lot of the methodologies that that show you what a publicly traded stock is worth. We're often looking at the future. We're looking at the rate of growth or we're discounting future cash flows and that kind of thing. And, and those types of methodologies just don't really apply in the main street. And it's because of the change of leadership. You know, I can buy shares in Coca-Cola and the leadership team is going to be there still. I get right. to enjoy that. Their, their plan that they're you know, laying out for the next few years, I get to participate with them. But when I buy a small business, the leadership leaves. Now it's my job, right? That's right. So, yeah. so the forward-looking stuff, while it can give you a reason to buy a business, buyers won't typically pay anything for that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Right. So, so you know, but let me show you. You asked me what I what I, about the intro reel. Let me show you some of the other stuff I prepared for today, because <laughs> because I did a lot of work and and I'm I'm pretty proud of myself. So. So, for example, look at this. So, <clears throat> see, there's since, the antlers right there. <laughs> since the beginning of November, I've been advertising the holiday chat special. So, what this is, is that people have been able to purchase one hour consulting calls with me at 75% at off the regular price. And so, um, these are paying customers who have agreed in exchange for that discount that I can record the calls and release them publicly. So they're going to be released starting Christmas Day tomorrow. There are nine of them for this year. And this is the fifth year I've done this, this promotion. And um, so there's nine callers, and it's only going out to people that are on my email list. So if you're watching this on any of the platforms and you want to hear those calls, 
head over to davidcbarnettlist.com and sign yourself up. You can unsubscribe yourself anytime. It's very easy. But if you don't want to sign up for the list, you have to wait until the summer. Because what I do is I release these publicly every Friday over the course of the summer to give people things to listen to over the weekend. And so there's a bunch of great calls, some actual real life scenarios of people trying to buy, sell. There's one guy who is looking at a franchise opportunity, one guy who's looking at making loans to small local businesses, lots of interesting topics this year. Um, so get on the list if you're not already. What do you I like? Do you like that reindeer? I drew that. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously? I, I, no, I didn't draw that. That's, that's like a Canva template. You, you uh, just get, you just get that. It's uh, that's funny. Part of the magic of the internet. I, I would have gone for it. I, you could have you could have run that a little bit further, and I'd have believed you. <laughs> Rocky, can you uh, can you sit up a little bit so I can see the full beauty of your sweater? My my beautiful. Yeah, this is one of those. You know. Oh yes, thank you, sir. <laughs> this is what happens when you have kids and you have everything. This is what you get for Christmas. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, Rocky, I want to thank you very much for joining today. If if people want to find out about <clears throat> Richer Soul or any other stuff you're doing, where is the best place for them to find you? So the if you go to profitcomesfirst.com, it will take you to both podcasts and, and links to everywhere else. So or just Google my name and I will show up. They're all my links. Or places uh, are, that um, I've been. <laughs> not many Rocky Lalvanis out there. No, that that was uh the luck of the draw. <laughs> that was that was an exercise in branding on the part of your parents. It was. Who knew? <laughs> I tried with my kids, but I failed miserably with my son. His his uncle actually is one of the sharks on Shark Tank in London, so he's never going to rank. <laughs> oh wow! And he has the same name. Same name, yeah. Oh, oh wow. well, you never know. <laughs> you try your best. <laughs> All right. Merry Christmas. My, Rocky, Have a wonderful pleasure to meet New you. Year. Merry Christmas, Rocky. We'll talk with you later. Um, Mike, I was looking for different headlines and things earlier today in preparation for this call because I thought that, um, and I came across one that I thought in particular would be interesting for you. So, so let me let, let's take a look at this together. So this is a, is a headline from CNBC, and it says that SPAC issuance jumps to the highest since March as deals rush to market before year end. And, and for those of you guys who are watching out there, a SPAC is a special purpose acquisition company. And so I recalled the conversations that you and I have had about selling your business to a private equity group. And I thought if a private equity group isn't going to buy your small business, maybe a SPAC might be in the market for your small business. What do you think? Maybe. Maybe if we define small business as, you know, 20 million pushing 5 million plus to the bottom line. And uh, yeah, yeah, sure. Why not? Uh, yeah. Well, you know where I sit on that. These things, these headlines that obviously someone's PR department is pushing is all good and well for them, but it doesn't impact the 98% of us small business owners who actually own small businesses. So you, it's, um, leaves, you me, had put leaves out, me guessing. You put out a great meme or infographic on LinkedIn uh, a couple of weeks ago, and you had um, two different crowds of people in two different size megaphones. And, and I think the caption was something like, 
like the amount of news and information about big businesses and it was the big megaphone. And then it was the amount of information relating to small businesses. It was the little megaphone. Yep. And, and let me tell you earlier today, because, you know, I know that during the, you know, uh, Christmas Eve party, I've got different people coming and going. We're talking about all kinds of different things, but I always worry, do I need to find topics to, to, to fill the conversation? Sure. So, so I went and I searched in Google, small business, small business news trends, 2021. Okay. And what kept happening is that there'd be some kind of headline that was interesting and I would go into it and very quickly realize that I was in something that was just hastily thrown together that didn't really have any value, but was designed to draw people in to show ads. Sure. One after another, after another. And I was like, man, there's a lot of static out here on the internet. And it reminded me of that infographic image that you had shared. It, it, it it's, um, it's so frustrating um, because the audience out there, the number of owners that desperately need that information is, I, I mean, the ones that I feel worst for are the ones that are really trying to pay attention, right? And unless they're lucky enough to trip across your channel or my site or, you know, any of the number of others that we could name, um, they're going to be reading about Google's last acquisition. And yeah. that's what is going to inform their understanding of valuation and process and what what creates value. And, and it's meaningless relative to most small businesses. So it's... Uh, yeah, I mean, that content um, megaphone out there. And, and again, it, it, it gets tricky, right? If, if your network looks like mine, which is a lot of small business owners, but also a lot of professionals in the buy and sell of small business, I see a fair amount of that content. But I know that I'm looking deep at a very narrow uh, niche. Yeah, yeah it, and, and, you know, what's interesting is that while there is a lot of content out there and, and I try to find, you know, interesting people to talk with for, for my own channel and stuff. Um, I'm actually starting to realize that some of the best resources for information about business is actually getting back to like books, hmm. you know, where I can, you know, at least I can read reviews or see what other people have said about books or people can recommend books to you. And, you can go and you can like take it away from the static and you can yep. enjoy it. One that, um, uh, have you ever read this one? This is one I've been reading here late in the last few weeks, the six month fix. I have not. It's from 20 years ago. It's a guy named Gary Sutton, but he was a turnaround expert. And so the whole book is stories of things that he did from one business to another, um, to address problems and get people back on track and, and sure. bigger companies. Sure. But, but the lessons, there's definitely some lessons in there that are applicable to uh, to everything else. Um, what? So we have we have a couple we have a couple of comments here. Victor says he's looking forward to the holiday chats. Last year was very educational. Thanks, Victor. Um, five years now, I've been doing holiday chats. I, I I was like blown away when I realized that the other day. This is the third Christmas Eve special, and. It's funny how you start doing something and all of a sudden it becomes a tradition. Right. Um, Ron wants to know what is the streaming service being used to split the screen between the hosts? Ron, we're using something called StreamYard and it gives me all kinds of hosting abilities to, to change the view and 
make things look really fun and cool. It's almost like we have a production staff here on hand. And um, and then he, he mentions your microphone is kind of rubbing against the zipper on your shirt. Oh, sorry about that. Yeah. No, no problem. Hey, Ron, we're amateurs here. We were, we're the internet's just our tool. We're we're trying to make the most of it. Um, so so this SPAC thing though is interesting to me because um, throughout the last year, and this may or may not be tied to things like government policy with respect to money and lending and you know response to the health concerns and everything going on, but it seems like there's more and more money chasing after perceived opportunities. And this SPAC thing, I think, is a, is a result of some of that. I, I, I find it hard to get my head around the idea that I should invest money into something so that somebody can go and buy something else. I, I can see maybe a small portion of a diversified portfolio, that kind of thing. But I mean, from my own point of view, I'd like to know what the money's going into. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, it speaks to this, I think, broader question that applies across the board, regardless of the size of the business is how, where are we really, right? If you take the, as the juice starts to leave the system, as the, as the money starts to maybe, maybe, maybe get a little bit back more. I mean, I spent the first six months watching brokers post about the SBA program for small business purchase that was going to end in, you know, three months, two months, one month. Um, I think they, a lot of people bought a business because they thought cheap money was the, the, the main concern. And that's obviously a concern. But uh, um, yeah, I don't know. Do you, are, are you seeing that a lot on the buyer side that the money is motivating? Um, I'll tell you that the the, there were two different deadlines with the SBA. There was the first program and the second program in 2021. And it was motivating timelines. People that found deals that made sense wanted them to close under a certain timeline to get that money. Sure. But if you look at like the second program was three months of payments. You know, three months of payments in the grand scheme of thing is not necessarily like you're not and if the deal doesn't isn't right, you don't want to overpay in order to like get, you know, 30 grand of free government money. Right. right, right. Like so I, I think what was a surprise to me anyway is I thought when the lockdowns happened in 2020 that people were going to behave in a rational fashion. Like the government and stuff. Sure. Okay. Based on what it what what life experience, David. <laughs> Well, I don't know. I, I was just, it was projection, I believe. It was yeah, just yeah. projecting. Hope, hope. So, you know, instead of having, I, I mean, I'm sure somebody over there, and we're talking about the U.S. Small Business Administration, I'm sure somebody over there, there probably said, whoa, we're in trouble. We're going to have millions of people defaulting. And they thought, let's just change the rules. Yeah. <laughs> so, and and they just used the program as a, as a outlet for government assistance, which is pretty smart. I mean, that was a good idea. Um, and so people who bought a business in 2019, who suddenly had this fall in revenue and earnings and stuff who were like, oh my God, what am I going to do to be told six months, don't worry about your payment. I mean, that to me makes a lot of sense, yep, but then to open the door for new people to come in, I wonder what the motivation was for that, because it's almost like trying to stoke the flames of demand to help 
paper over issues. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like if we can stoke more demand, we can probably have some some issues disappear. And and that's when I start to wonder if I can really give them credit for such Machiavellian plots, <laughs> um, right? Right. You know, who who knows? But yeah, no, it's interesting. Are you seeing? I mean, I'm I'm seeing occasional pop ups of public sector involvement in the um, transition of business ownership. I'm seeing some regional economic development companies getting involved in that sort of thing, uh, and they're doing it in, in in different ways. Are you seeing much of that in your area? I'm seeing it here where I live. I've been seeing it for the last couple of years. Okay. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you one quick story. The There's a, an umbrella group of regional economic development organizations here, and they were going, they were looking for help. They actually put it on an RFP, uh, request for proposals, for somebody to help them create some sort of program to help these businesses transition for succession planning. Because what they were seeing were these businesses that you and I know about, the, the zombie capital businesses, they were closing in rural communities in particular, right. and people were losing their jobs yep. uh, because nobody wanted to buy them. And, and so I actually took the time to respond to the RFP, put together a proposal saying that what I wanted to do was create a tool that uh, these development officers could use to quickly assess whether a business was even in the realm of sellability or not so that they would know which places to apply their resources. Hmm. And of course they didn't pick mine. <laughs> they, they, went with some, they went with someone else who wanted to build a website to advertise businesses for sale. Sure. Which of course there are already all kinds of free market providers of that. Right. Right. Yep. Uh, Mike Henry's in the, Henry just came into the green room. Excellent. Should we let him in? Let's do it. Everyone, Henry Lopez joining us from Florida. How are you today, Henry? I'm doing well. I heard you. I heard you ask uh, Mike with trepidation. Should we let him in? <laughs> <laughs> Did you hear my enthusiastic? Cheer, yeah, you were like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, Good and, and for people who don't know, Henry is the host of the How of Business, and has been a longtime advisor to business people. And and you are, or at least you were when you were in Texas. Uh, one of the mentors in the SCORE program, were you not? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I still am. Yeah. Uh, just switched chapters now with uh, a chapter here in, in South Florida, which I'm nearest to. And so I, I think SCORE qualifies as an economic development type of entity, quasi-government funded. What um, Are you seeing um, initiatives within SCORE for this problem of succession? Is that something that's being talked about in those circles? Not that I see, no. I mean, I, I would still say that we're doing what we've been doing for a number of years. I've been a SCORE mentor now for, I don't know, seven or eight years. So it's still about primarily who comes to SCORE. I'm generalizing, but primarily it's people who have a dream, an aspiration, but they don't even know how to get started or if they're even ready. So we get mostly the people that we get are very early in the process and they just need the basic education of how to go about starting a business. So, so it's mostly startup help is what you're doing. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so um, I listen to your podcast sometimes and I think that I caught uh, a comment that you, you live on an Island now. 
I do, yeah. It's not my own island. There are other people on this island. (laughs) 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 Well, so I moved uh, back. I say back to Florida because I grew up in South Florida. I'm a son of Cuban immigrants. And so moved back last year, rented, and then just bought a place on a, a barrier island called Hutchinson Island in a town called Jensen Beach, which is about an hour north of Palm Beach on the east coast of Florida. And is it is it a long ferry? Is there is there a ferry or a bridge? Oh, bridges. Yeah, sorry. Oh, yeah. okay. Bridges. Okay. Yeah. As uh, for those of you who have been on the east coast of Florida, you know there's a there's a whole stretch of barrier islands that runs almost the entire length of the east coast, hmm. and on those barrier islands, that's where our beaches are, as well as you know it gets narrow and wider at different points. But there's condos and townhomes and homes in certain areas, and so there's we call them causeways or bridge roads that cross over to it. Our particular island, which is about, I don't know, 20 miles long, this particular stretch has three different bridges that cross over. Okay. So so it's not a, a, a traffic jam in the morning to get on a ferry or anything like that? No. Plus, I don't commute. So if, even if yeah. there were, I wouldn't have to deal with it. I, you know, I've been home officing now for, gosh, over 20 years. Wow. Yeah. Speaking of offices, guys, we are at 25 likes, and I'll remind everyone we need to get to 50 likes on YouTube to mm-hmm. achieve the reindeer incentive. So, um, uh, Mike, did you know that Henry and his cousin invested in a co-working space? I did. Yes, I remember you talking about that last year a little bit. Right, right. Well, when we talked last year, obviously we had just launched last year. It was year just June. opening. Yeah, <laughs> mid yeah. mid COVID. Yeah. And so, so how how did has it gone? I mean, I know Florida's restrictions have opened up. Has, yes. has the business been able to to get its feet under it? And 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 it's it's and been offering? a struggle. And yeah. and the struggle is this: we are in the ninety percent range occupancy. However, because we had to give away so many concessions during COVID. To get people in, uh, the profitability isn't where it should be. So we had to oh. give a lot of discounts away. So we gotta we gotta cycle through those memberships. Fortunately, what we do in these types of spaces are not long term leases. They're at the most a one year membership. So that does give us the opportunity now, as we cycle through those, to bring it closer to market. But that's been our challenge. It is starting to opening up. We're in this, uh, what's becoming very popular, at least in the States, these lifestyle community centers where it's an apartment building and retail and restaurants and an office building and a hotel. The retail component of it got significantly delayed and they're just about to start opening. So once that all kicks in, then all of the benefits of that community will kick in and hopefully we'll see some improved traffic. Henry, are you are you seeing mostly an audience of um, independents, corporate refugees? I mean, who, who's who's filling the seats? Sure, it's still mostly small businesses in that one to five employee range. It's the small attorney's office or the real estate broker, insurance broker, mortgage broker, those types of businesses, a small CPA firm. But we have seen more than we would have in the past. I think of that displaced professional that's not going to have an office to go back to. So we're seeing that more and more, obviously, as as we all have, we're now employees of a certain category are getting a stipend to go get their own space. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Our model is unique for this franchise in that most of the office evolution locations are in a more suburban location as opposed to an urban location where we work, for example, has mostly concentrated. We're in a suburban location, which is appealing to this also this trend of not just 
working remotely, they still people still want an office, but if they don't want to commute two hours down to downtown Miami or Fort Lauderdale. Yeah, interesting. It, for for the Office Evolution franchise, when people have a membership, does that allow them to go and stop at other locations? It does. It does provide certain benefits and discounts, for example, on conference room. The conference room isn't free, but it's discounted. And yes, they can come in and use the common co co-working spaces. And, and are you seeing many of these people from other locations coming and using your facility? Is, is you know, there we haven't, we haven't yet, but I, I think we're going to start to, you know, the density in Florida for us isn't quite there. We have the one locate, two locations in South Florida, two in Tampa, two in Jacksonville. I think once we get more density in Florida, we'll see more of that, David, but we mm -hmm. haven't seen it yet. We have seen people though, who have business where they're in Tampa and in Miami. And so they've gotten a plan where they can use either or. So we do see that. Okay. And, and just from a business point of view, what does the, what, what does a street streetscape look like in your community? I mean, have you had many businesses close because of what's been going on the last two years? What does it look like? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I think the word, the biggest impact is, as you might imagine, is on restaurants or other businesses that depended on, on people coming in uh, to an event or a gathering of some sort, but restaurants, primarily are what got hit. And as, as you may know, well, you don't know, because since last year I sold my frozen yogurt restaurant, which was impacted severely. So I think that's the biggest segment where you've seen the most impact. Yeah. And then now what I'm seeing, obviously, is related to all of this, is the labor shortage, shrinkage, whatever you want to call it. Restaurants in particular can't seem to find enough help. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think that's happening everywhere. There's um, all kinds of articles out there about the great resignation. And I think right. there's a few other terms as well, where people are deciding that they, they don't have time anymore to wait to live. They want to get out and do what they want to do and, and just being impactful for a lot of these businesses. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. I think it's a combination of things. It is such a fascinating topic though, as a, as a business owner and, and like us who analyze business and guide others is so many factors i think that are coming together to create this this shortage of labor well yesterday in the evening it was minus 25 degrees celsius here Ooh. with the wind chill and so <laughs> which you wonder why does anybody live there but we'll, we'll get beyond that well, because i'm here <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> well <laughs> very nice in the summer so <laughs> exactly um so yeah, i did my months. both did months my, both in well, you're giving it two months i give it two weeks Sorry, I, so I did my evening walk at the shopping center, right? So I drove over there to do a couple of circuits and I counted the vacant spots, mm. but more than just the vacant spots, you know, with a big shopping center, you have these little retailers that are kind of in the middle with these kiosk right. type of locations as well. Um, you know, juice spots or cell phone spots, things like this. And so I counted the closed locations. Mm. I counted the kiosks that have been removed. You can tell by the tiles on the floor, you know, where some work's been done to, <laughs> to clean them away. Um, but also what I'm going to call the under leased locations. So mm -hmm. th this, this shopping center is owned by a big REIT that has shopping centers all across Canada. And mm -hmm. it's very well known that if you're a local independent business person there, you're not the kind of tenant they want. But now there are some people like that yeah. in there mm -hmm. because I think they're willing to take whoever they can get. And so there were 16 vacant wow. or removed spots wow. and three of these under leased locations. 
And so it's, it's very noticeable that uh, there's been an impact in the retail scene uh, here, here where I live too. And as, as, I mean, as far as restaurants go, I'm trying to think there's been an evolution. Um, have, have you heard of these uh, dark kitchens they're calling them where yes. there's no dining room. It's, it's right. strictly a kitchen built to provide to uh, skip the dishes and Uber eats and these kinds of delivery people. Yep. Uh, there's one near my house. And uh, it's in an old industrial building. They've renovated a whole line kitchen and, and they're on these apps as 12 different restaurants. Wow. They've got 12 different menus all served from that one kitchen. I think you're going to see that continue for, for a lot of different reasons. I think you're going to see that continue. You know, uh, Popeye's during the pandemic had record revenues, record revenues, all of it, mind you, through drive through. In fact, some Popeye's and I'm even seeing some McDonald's have yet to open inside because of the labor shortage. Right. But I wonder how much it is that they've realized, wait a second, why why deal with the dining room when our profits are in the drive-thru? Well, it, and if there's no competitive forces making you, you know, That's like right. I, I know that uh, there is a McDonald's near my house and, and it's very close to a Tim Hortons coffee shop. And so mm. – Pre-pandemic, if I went there at 10 o'clock in the morning at McDonald's, it was filled with uh, retired people sitting around having coffee, right? Right. And so, so they were competing with that coffee shop across the way. But if there's if the other local eateries aren't quite opened up yet either, then you, to your point, you know why why do you need to? Yeah, yeah. I think you're going to see that trend continue in cities like New York City. My daughter lives in Manhattan. And that's becoming certainly an emerging trend because that's been an, an environment where delivery has been part of it before COVID. So there, I think we're going to see, I think we might even see chains or new brands that do not have a walk-in space that will be yeah. solely for delivery. Now, you know, the commercial kitchen really took a boom, at least in the States, with the explosion of the food truck business. We looked at a food truck with with uh, with the frozen yogurt business, but the food trucks exploded. I don't know about five, ten years ago, right? Now you could argue it's saturated, but it was such a logical growth transition for someone who wanted to start a restaurant, and it still is. And so, there's a lot of commercial kitchens that have emerged to serve that market. Oh, you mean they're acting like a commissary, right? Because in most, in uh, just about all uh, jurisdictions in the United States, health restrictions require you to have a commissary of some sort for yeah. food storage, food preparation. So that then when the, the food truck market exploded, that demand for commissaries or commercial kitchens, as they call them, exploded as well. Fascinating. Gentlemen, I'm going to, I'm going to bow out and let you, uh, let you continue. It's been a pleasure as, as always, David, Henry. Um, Mike, it's good to see you. Happy holidays. Where can people learn more about, uh, about your coaching work with uh, business owners wanting to get ready to sell? They can check me out at exitoasis.com or I'm most active on LinkedIn. So uh, find me there. Awesome. Good to see you, Mike. Merry Christmas. Take care, Mike. Gentlemen, take care. I love Mike's post on, on LinkedIn. He does. I, I, I love it because of the content, obviously, that we all enjoy. But it's I think you can learn from him as to how to use LinkedIn. He's very effective at it. He, yes, he does. He does very well. Um, it's interesting that you mention uh, restaurants and food trucks and whatnot, Henry, because I, I've got another uh, guest who's just arrived, uh, Rick, who has owned, um, how many restaurants have you owned, Rick? Seven. 
Wow. Seven, seven different restaurants. And you, you did a, sort of a deep dive into the food truck thing too at one point, but I don't think you ever got into it, did you? Nope. Nope, never did. Uh, I just kind of caught the last end of what you guys are talking about in terms of the, uh, the ghost kitchens, commercial kitchens, and commissaries and so on. It's kind of interesting. The Henry, what's your background? Well, my, my very first business in 1991, I bought an existing franchise of a local pizza delivery chain in the Dallas area. Had three units of that, sold those in the 90s, and then most recently had two locations of a frozen yogurt business in Colorado Springs, and we just sold the second one uh, earlier this year. So okay. I've dabbled. That's been my my direct exposure in restaurants, and of course, I've had clients and, and other associations with restaurants. Always been fascinated with it because I like to eat. We both do. <laughs> which is why a lot of people get into the restaurant business, which is not a good reason. But anyway, that's briefly my background as it relates to I have had other businesses, but that's my restaurant background. Okay. So, yeah, I was just when I was listening to your take on the, the ghost kitchens and so on, I've been asked that many times, like, what's the future of restaurants? And to be honest with you, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know that they're in for a real world of hurt uh, ever since the government started restricting some of the access to customers. And I know there's been a, you know, a change in, in demand for whether it's ghost kitchens or the, the Uber eats and skip the dishes of the world and DoorDash or whatever. So there is that, but I think there's, they're some, they're missing something. And what I think they're missing is these ghost kitchens don't have branding behind them. We all need to eat. And the question is, okay, where do we eat? Do we eat at home? Do we eat, you know, whether it's these ghost kitchens or do we eat at an established brand that we already recognize? And what we're seeing in Costco's and the ones in, in my town is we're seeing a lot of brand name restaurants starting to use their brand to sell mm. products in the, in the freezers. And I mean, yes. they're making money, right? But if it was Joe Blow's ribs, nobody would care. No, the minute it's that brand name restaurant that we all go to once in a while to treat ourselves and we know, okay, well, we could spend $40 on that plate at that restaurant or we can pick them up at Costco and pop them in the oven for 20 minutes and they're just as good. Eh, I, I, I trust the brand, so I'll continue to buy this product, but it'll be right. it'll be through the retailer. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, dilemma because we have not had in the food industry a brand like that that hasn't, like you said, that we haven't developed a trust word first by going to that restaurant, right? And so it'll be interesting to see if that can be done. Yeah. 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 So I, I don't know. I'm still hanging on the fence on this ghost kitchen idea. I mean, mm-hmm. is there opportunity? Yes. But I think they still have to create a brand where people trust them. Yeah, but don't you, don't you think they'll be creative about that with pop-up kitchens or, you know, demo pop-ups or temporary or food trucks or food trailers? You know, you take a, a, a city like New York where maybe it's more more possible mm-hmm. where you can do those kind of temporary things to establish that brand, that connection, like you said, Rick, and then transition to being more of a no, you know, no public, no retail space kind of situation. Once the brand is established, absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah. But if, I, if you look, my, I mean, I'm also a marketer and when we look at branding, I mean, a lot of people think of branding, well, it's a re- re- uh, well-established name that we trust and so on. But if you look at the fundamentals of what a brand really is, it's a story and it's a story that we tell ourselves. It's a story that's told others. So with a brand new business and a ghost, what's the story? I yeah. don't know. Right. And I don't have an affiliation. I don't have an experience, a memory, something that it brings me back to. You know, when I see that Whataburger ketchup, spicy ketchup bottle at the grocery store, I have an association, right? 
And so I'm more likely to pick that up over another spicy ketchup that might be even better. But I've got that association with that, that affiliation with that brand. Literally, exactly. as you said that, Henry, somebody commented, Tactitus 1979 commented about the Whataburger uh, spicy ketchup. Um, mm. But it's interesting what you're saying, Rick, because that that dark kitchen that I mentioned here near me, they actually went and contacted former business people of closed restaurants, one of them being uh, one that a friend of mine from high school used to own called Cutthroat Pizza. It was like a late mm. night pizza place back in the day. When people my age were out at you know, bars late at night more mm -hmm. often, it ran for several years and then closed. And they contacted him. And he that name is one of their restaurants and they're carrying his recipes. Uh -huh. And so they reached out to him specifically to deal with the problem that you're bringing up. Interesting. And it's interesting you say that, Dave, because as you know, my experience, I used to work for a pizza chain. Mm -hmm. and, and when we were looking at expanding out of Western Canada, uh, we, we were using... Well, the VPs were using this idea that there were there were Atlantic Canadians that had moved out west in the oil business, and they there was all this desire for this product and some of their secret recipes. Well, we moved out there and with great fanfare established very early on high sales. But within about three months, they just petered off, and then hmm. eventually over time, there wasn't enough revenue coming in to pay for the overhead. Hmm. Now, what what I would see, I see that angle where it would have been easier to go out there with a ghost kitchen. And say, okay, now we're open for business. And all of you guys that know us from back east will order from us. And we won't have the overhead to worry about all the other stuff. Yeah. 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 I've seen that happen with other brands. I mean, most most recently, In N Out came into Texas. And initially, you know, there were lines wrapped around the block literally for, you know, the first six months. And then it now it's kind of back to normal. There's been either some other brands, White Castle came into that market, huge lines, and now they're gone. Uh, so it's an interesting thing. I, I wonder what your thoughts when we're topic on restaurants, Rick, the whole, what I saw in Texas and I'm seeing more and more is the incubator kitchens. So you have a facility that somebody runs and there's three or four restaurants that are incubating there. What are your thoughts on that and how that, that could move forward or even be related to this idea of starting at an incubator program and then maybe going to a ghost kitchen? That's interesting that you say that. I've never heard of incubator kitchens before, but mm. I mean, I've heard of incubator businesses. I know right. Tony Jay was doing that out in Las Vegas with his mm. uh, container businesses. Um, I like it because it gives them a chance to get a foothold, right. find some customers with not a lot of overhead, maybe none at all because the equipment's already there and they're just paying rent for it. So I do like that idea. And whether they're using it into a, you know, in the future into a ghost kitchen, they'll build on their brand. Right. Right. Yeah, there's a really popular one in Dallas, right outside of downtown Dallas, for those of you listening who, who might be there, really popular. And so what it is, is they, they take care of the environment. And there's at any point in time, about five to six restaurants there. The the people who own the place, the incubators, the facilitated take a percentage investment in it. And then if it's successful, they spawn it off to its own location. Are, are you talking about something that's kind of like a destination food court? Kind of like think of think exactly court? think of it like a modern food hall. Those are becoming very popular as well in the states, right? The, these high end food halls. But that's what you would, as a customer, if you didn't know any better, you would just assume this is a cluster of restaurants in this particular design in Dallas. They have outside seating, indoor seating, and they're just all lined up. If you think kind of like a strip shopping center where there would be five restaurants in a row. Nicely designed, nice environment with a common walkway and a porch and parking and the whole bit, but they're all actually part of an incubator program at that location. Mm. 
It, that's an interesting idea. I've, I've heard of, uh, you know, commercial kitchens being available for <clears throat> people like caterers and whatnot to use right. for events and stuff like this. But <clears throat> it, it's almost merging that incubator business startup idea with mm-hmm. specifically the food service. It sounds it is. like the kind it of is. business Rick should launch. And it makes a lot of sense because as you, I'm sure you've advised more clients than I have, Rick, but my, my challenge always is somebody comes to me with a restaurant idea and it's their first business ever. Typically it's been, well, I got to go sign that lease somewhere for 5,000 square feet for 10 years. And you're like, Oh, wait a second, slow down. Maybe you start with catering. Maybe you start with a food truck or a food cart. Maybe you start in one of these incubators. So you take a step at a time to validate that you've got something that people want. Yeah, absolutely. We see it. We see it in other businesses where we ask for proof of concept. But when we get into the restaurant business, they've got to invest. And I I like the idea of the incubator for sure. Are you guys aware of what Tony Shea has done in Vegas? I am not. No, I was just there. But what what has he done there? So part of old Vegas down where um, Mm -hmm. down like what is it called? Fremont? Fremont Mm -hmm. Street? Correct. The Fremont Experience or something like that. Yeah, down in that area. That's where the Zappos head office is. And and when, when Tony sold out to, to Amazon and, and then built his head office in Las Vegas, everyone was coming to him looking for, you know, investments, looking for money to, you know, for him to help them. And he decided at one point that instead of giving people money, he was going to give them free rent. So he set up all these shipping containers and created a little mm. park where you could go in. So there was, the, you know, the whiskey distiller and then there's the clothing shops and the soap places and the coffee houses. And, and, and there was a, and he put built a, kid park in the middle, like play park. So they could go on the jungle gyms and so on. And so you could basically go in there and, and test all of these new businesses, but more importantly, these business operators could get rent free for two years. Wow. And then once they prove their concept, then the whole idea was either they were going online with their product or they were moving out and paying rent somewhere else. Now, was this a passion project for him or was he monetizing it in any way? I don't think he was monetizing it. I think it was more along just giving back to the community. Yeah. Um, and I only heard of it because when I was in Vegas, I happened to stumble across it. This reminds me of, um, I just realized what it reminds me of. It reminds me of the farmer's market. So we have mm-hmm. a, we have a market here in town. It's open every Saturday morning till one or two in the afternoon. And it's, it's a place where people can test out a business idea and only have to commit to that you know, six or seven hour block of staffed time to operate their stall. Um, and there have been businesses that have started there, gotten established. And, you know, I can think of a couple of food service ones where eventually the owners ended up opening up actual storefront restaurants. They grew yeah. out of that market. And other people who came, splash, fizzle, gone, probably realized their idea wasn't that great without having exactly. risked too much. Yeah. Same thing happens when my daughter is uh, trying to launch a side business in the fashion industry, a vintage clothing business. So in New York, she's participating. There's a couple of of organizations that have put this together for profit and she'll rent a booth. Same idea, David, but for fashion Mm -hmm. in this shared space, there's about, you know, 30 others and she pays all her commitment has to be as weekly. In fact, it's just a weekend for that matter. And so that's where she's developing her concept and her mix and her merchandising and her pricing and all of that. But that's becoming extremely popular in the fashion industry. It has been for a while, but really has taken off in those kind of markets. I'll remind everyone, we need to get to 50 likes on YouTube. If you want to see me wear the antlers, we're at 27. So if you're watching out there. And I've seen it before. I've seen them wear it before. It's a good look. Yeah, (laughs) it is. Let's just leave it at that. Very festive. Rick's already got his festive attire. He on. does. That. <laughs> I'm 
I'm sporting a new shirt and jacket. Nice. And and very very pleased because this year one of the big things that happened for me of course is I got a show sponsor, a wardrobe sponsor. Wow. And if anyone out there wants to look dangerous like me, um head over to jeffalpa.com/dcb10 that code will get you a discount and they they do virtual fittings and they measure you through Zoom wow. and they ship everywhere in the world and they deal in multiple currencies. But that's one of the other cool, exciting things that happened for me in 2020 anyway. And it was all sparked by people leaving comments saying I had a really ugly shirt on for one of my videos. <laughs> and so criticism received, everybody. Criticism received. But what Action a great paid. example of an industry where I would have said, oh, there's no way you're going to fit me for a jacket online. And yet here it is happening. Yeah. Yeah. It, and then um, they get orders from people like uh, executives of big companies who will want to give like 20 custom shirts, maybe to 20 uh, big customers. Right. I see. And, and they'll just place the order and then the tailor will contact each of those people and arrange a meeting and, and they'll do all of this stuff over Zoom and they'll measure everything out and the shirts all come and they fit perfectly. Brilliant. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. Wonderful. And they're doing this over Zoom. So yeah. do they have some type of pattern that they they force you to do or do they ask you to measure while while you're on? They guide you through the measurements. So they'll they'll like get you to measure around your neck or get you to measure from like, you know, from here to your shoulder or wherever they do, right? So the, the reason why they were such a great sponsor is they actually have a store about 90 minutes from here in Fredericton. They have another store in Waterloo, Ontario. And Henry, they were set to open in Austin exactly. uh, just before the pandemic hit, the wow. lockdown. And then, so that's been delayed, but they intend to open there soon. And so um, it's a growing business and they're serving people all over the place anyway. And, and I think it's kind of cool. I think it's very cool. Do you have any idea where they're supposed to set up in Austin? I don't. But they're going to let me know um, so that when they're ready to do it, I can organize maybe a workshop or event down there and I'll come down mm -hmm. and, and check it out. Hey, I've got the space for you. So well, you're in Austin, Rick? No, but I'm in Austin. But before Austin. the pandemic, I was there twice a year. I see. Yeah, Austin is... Uh, do you, uh, Henry, do you know about Wizard of Ads? No. The, oh. it's, it's a famous book... Uh, Rick, why don't Wizard you of ads. Who, who's, what is Wizard of Ads and the Wizard Academy and, and your affiliation? So Roy Williams is, uh, he's an ad writer and he lives in Austin out by Crystal Springs, which I can't remember if it's in North Austin or South Austin. I can never remember. Um, but um, he, he's been helping businesses for years on their advertising stuff. And, and eventually he got sick and tired of flying around the world, helping people. And he's like, you know what, from now on, I want people to come to me. So he, he set up his wizard Academy and, mm -hmm. and in doing that, he also set up basically the school and, and teaching people the stuff that he does. And, and so from there, he also develops partners. So there was people that came on board like me who said, who said, I want to know more about this and eventually became partners. So he's got like 50 some partners around the world, kind of almost got his got the Roy gospel, if you want to call it that. Right. And uh, yeah, so, and it's right in Austin. I love it. I love, I love going down to South of Congress and, hanging out there in that bohemian stretch for a bit and tour yeah. are you do you live in austin no no i used to live in dallas and and now live okay. in florida okay but so yeah. she would get down to austin often yeah okay yeah so yeah so he's it's out in the he's out in this i you know they say the sticks but it's just just outside of town it's <laughs> yeah, like a it's hot not the sticks anymore yeah no exactly 
And so, and, and Rick, you work with people all over because this, the, the partner network refers business to each other. And you were telling me the other day that you actually, um, sorry, it wasn't West Virginia. What state was it in that you had picked up a new client? Arkansas. In Arkansas. Okay. And you were talking to me about some of the crazy difficulties because, you know, pre pandemic, of course, you could just get on a plane, fly down for one day's business meetings and fly back. Mm -hmm. Right. And now it's not so easy. And uh, what you, did you find out you're going to have to get a, your nose swabbed or something when you're down there? Yeah, I'm going to have to do it. I haven't talked to, I know some people at the, uh, at the security. So I'm just going to call them and say, okay, what do I need to do a couple days in advance? And I think I got to get a nose swab and get a molecular test. And, and I'm only down there for one full day. So like, <laughs> I probably gonna have to get off the plane, go get another molecular test so I can get home. Right. If they'll even allow us. I mean, I noticed today that the airlines are, are canceling a bunch of flights tonight. Because oh, really? A bunch of employees called in sick and said, we're not working tonight. Okay. <sighs> well, you know, to your point that started off this this line of conversation, Henry, about, uh, about restaurants having a hard time. I think one of the biggest issues that has come about with this pandemic is not necessarily the rules, but just the frequency of changing some of these policies. And, mm-hmm. and people not being able to plan and and the ability to have some sense of what the future is going to look like is so important in business. If we, sure. if we keep changing things, it's, it's impossible to plan for. Yeah, but how do you how do you avoid that? I mean, this is something that is evolving uh, on a daily basis. So how do you plan for a pandemic? I don't know. I, I think what it has highlighted certainly is as small business owners, and you were touching on this, I think, with David, is how many small businesses really were exposed because they were on the edge anyway. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. I mean, to me, some of the key takeaways is that we, we counsel, I'm sure you guys do as much as I do, how many people we counsel who go into business without enough working capital, without any plans for reserves. And then, of course, the pandemic pushed even people who had reserves beyond the brink. But I think it exposed those who were really operating on very thin margins and month to month. And I think if anything we take away is we as business owners, we have a responsibility for somewhat trying to be prepared for the unknown, because that's I mean, you, you say we got a plan. Sure, we got to be able to do that. But has there has there ever been really a time when you can predict everything that's coming? You as business owners, I think we have to deal with that. One of my key takeaways, I think, last year was realizing that as entrepreneurs, if if that incredible challenge that was COVID really brought you more stress than you can deal with, then I would say to you that maybe you wouldn't really cut out to be an entrepreneur. I know that's harsh, but my point is that isn't that what it's about, although it was exacerbated a million times during COVID, but isn't that what we really have to do best as entrepreneurs is to deal with uncertainty? Well, you know, it's interesting because I've, I've said before that, most of the people that I know who failed in business, what caused them to fail was something they weren't planning for, which most mm. people laugh about because they were like, of course, they weren't planning for it. But if you stop <laughs> to think about it, that's always what gets you. Because if you perceive the threat, you plan for it, right? That's I mean, right. I've, you know, along the lines of restaurants again, I remember one year, um, the city here decided to resurface all the streets between Main Street mm. and the river, thinking we'll do it all in one shot. Well, there's a restaurant in there and, you know, they're in a place where the summer touristy trade was really important to them. Gotcha. That road work killed them. Yeah. And, you know, they tried to survive. They probably should have just closed mm-hmm. and, and waited it out. 
but didn't see it that, you know, didn't yeah. understand that at that point where they could have made the decision. But that's, that's the kind of thing that happens, you know? Now it's easy for me to say to that owner, well, you should have planned for that. I don't know how you do. I mean, similarly, that happened to me. I had a salon suite business where the major intersection that the shopping center was at went under major construction and that, that impacted us severely. People couldn't get there. You know, the customers yeah. of my tenants couldn't get there sometimes. Uh, but again, how, could I have planned for that? I don't know. Uh, the point is that that's what business ownership is about to an extent. Mm. We're, we're challenged with being, you know, uh, readers of the crystal ball to predict where things are going. And at the same time, trying to, to plan and mitigate for what could go wrong. Right. Well, it, it's more than that. And I think you're, you're bang on, Henry. The um, when we look at entrepreneurship, when we're selling a product as business owners, we're trying to solve someone else's problem. They have a problem. We have a solution. Here it is. And we, you know, we make a margin on that solution. Well, in effect, I believe in my heart of hearts that entrepreneurs are nothing more than just problem solvers. Mm -hmm. And when, when they're faced with a challenge, then they have a problem in front of them and they have to figure out how to fix it. But not all things can be viewed through the crystal ball. But right. at the same time, when it's at you face to face, you got to figure out, okay, what does that mean? And even yeah. if you look at the base word of entrepreneur, like most people confuse that entrepreneur is just someone who owns a business. And it's like, right. no, it's not. No, it's An not. entrepreneur comes from the French word means entreprendre, means take within my hands. Mm -hmm. Okay. Take it within my hands and, and, and loosely just so I can solve it. And if I can solve whatever challenges are coming at me, then I'm an entrepreneur. And what also what I believe in that is an entrepreneur isn't someone just who owns the business who solves the problem. It's someone who works for you who, who can solve problems. Yeah, so maybe yeah. they don't make money as a business owner, but they're an entrepreneurial employee. Yeah, you're leveraging it's about, those resources. Yeah. Yeah. Taking on responsibility, being yeah, being yeah. willing to be responsible. Yeah. Yeah. And I think again, what COVID did, uh I'm not saying this is a good thing, but it but it, I think it highlighted for a lot of people that that stress wasn't something. I mean, listen, who was ready for it? But that level of stress wasn't what they were ready for. My point, my my big takeaway here, I think going forward is if you go into business thinking that you're going to plan for something and then it's going to go according to plan for here mm -hmm. and forevermore, then you're, you've got the wrong approach. Um, now it is what it is. Some people are business owners instead of entrepreneurs. And, and, and so that's the challenge. Uh, my wife, as you might recall, David is a, has a travel consultant. So her business has been in turmoil as yeah. well over the last year, but she's starting to see now that pent up demand of people wanting to book travel for next year. So. That's another business, of course, that was decimated. Yeah. Well, I know that there were a lot of international restrictions, too, for Americans to visit other places. That's uh, right. Was, still are. was she able to do some more domestic travel related business over the last year? Yeah, I think that's what happened. You know, it's interesting enough. A lot of people all of a sudden were starting to go to the Keys. The Florida Keys became a hot destination because it's in the U.S. and it still has that tropical feel. And there are more resorts and things to do down there than people realize. And you know, it had become Mexico, but then Mexico became restricted. So yeah, at domestic is where it went. The problem with somebody like her and her business is that there isn't a lot of money to be made in that kind of travel. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because of uh, how the commissions and everything work. How the commissions work exactly in the expense of the trips and all of that. You know, essentially, I was just reading an article getting ready for this conversation on about that Indeed did together or study rather on the whole issue by why people are not looking for jobs. And it's interesting that that's part of it. We don't realize that a lot of people did not spend a lot of money on travel that they otherwise would have spent, right? And so instead, they're using that money to give them some, some cushion on, well, maybe I don't have to go back to work yet. 
hmm. and that that's been one of the challenges. And so, yeah, a trip to Key West is not the same budget-wise as that planned trip to Europe that was going to happen for that family. Well, I know, I know my contractor who built my deck in 2020, and I was lucky to be able to get mm. him and get the materials when I did. Right. Uh, he commented to me that people were actually saying to him that they were spending their travel budget with him. Ah, interesting. Yeah, I can imagine so. Decks, patios, swimming pools, all that kind of stuff that was being put in where people realized, hey, if we're going to be stuck here, we might we better make it more enjoyable. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, speaking of, of doing work and stuff, you know, I've been very busy here this fall. You know what I've been doing, guys? I've been working on adding modules to my business buyer advantage program. And so I just recently added another two and a half hours of content and it's content related to share purchases and understanding normal net position and working capital, which is particularly important when you're buying a company as a share purchase. And I'm doing a little bit of a promotion. Um, I'm put, I've put a special bonus in the program. That's only going to be there until the 3rd of January. And when the third comes around, I'm also going to increase the price because I heard something about inflation. So I figured I should raise my prices <laughs> and I'm letting everyone know ahead that they can enroll today. And one of the great things about being a member of Business Buyer Advantage is that when you're in, you're in for life and any of the future new content gets added, it's there for you. And um, do you like the image I created? I made that earlier today, too. Very creative. Great stuff, <laughs> David. That's exciting. So yeah, so so things have been busy over here for me too. Um, yeah, and 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 Rick, what about you? What how has the last year been for you? You, you last year you told us about the restaurant that had burned down. Oh yep. boy, what what has happened now in the past year in your in your ownership of restaurants? So well, I sold all of my restaurants in 2020. So okay, I had three left, and well, one had burnt to the ground, so we collected our insurance payout. And the other two we sold. So so as of May of 2020, I was completely free and clear from those businesses. And uh, we had I had some contract work from as a consultant with, with different organizations. So I continue to do that. But I've been working from home since pretty much April of last year. And uh, picked up different contracts. Obviously not able to travel and not able to go out and shake hands and kiss babies and do the other things. But... But we have we have some other methods of, of picking up clients. So like like the one in Arkansas, we uh, was able to do that. But I, I do have to get down there to see them. And I'm kind of hoping we'll be okay to go in the new year because I've already got my flight booked and got to go. Yeah. But yeah, Good that's stuff. pretty much what I've been doing. Well, good. I'll start to transition out here in a moment, David. Unless you need anything else from well, me. Why don't contribute? you let everyone? Why don't you let everyone know how they can find out about you and 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 explain a little bit about your show, the How of Business, and the kind of guests that you have on there? Because I, I enjoyed that program. You do a great job with the podcast. I appreciate it. I've had you on two or three times, I think, now over the years. Started it in 2016. The How of Business is the name of the show. Thehowofbusiness.com is where you can go to find everything about me. And uh, just released episode 400 a couple weeks ago. So I do a weekly episode and mostly I do interviews of other business owners or professionals or anybody that has expertise to share with my audience, which is people who either aspire to become an entrepreneur or existing small business owners that are looking for ways to grow their business. And then sometimes I'll do topic episodes. You know, last year I was looking back through the stats. 
last year was record numbers for me, which continues to show, as I'm sure you guys are seeing as well, this increased demand of people saying, hey, maybe this is the time to start a business, which is certainly, of course, one of those other factors that's affecting the labor force, right? People are thinking, hey, this is the time for me to go do my own thing, whether it's freelance or start a business. But, you know, I'm certainly seeing that in the result of my download numbers over the past year. Last January was a record for me. And then in November, this past October, November broke that record in downloads. So awesome. I am seeing that increased demand, interest in people who want to start a business. Uh, but yeah, the howabusiness.com is what I do. And that, of course, is not the only thing I do. I'm also an active business owner, but that's the, the main place to find out about everything that I'm involved in. Well, thanks so much for joining us again. And I uh, hope you have a great uh, holiday time over the next week or so with uh, Christmas and New Year's. And uh, say hi to your family. And uh, it's good to see you again, Henry. Thank you. Thanks, Rick. Thanks, David. Thank you. All right. Take see care. you later. Bye-bye. Um, now, Rick, you have uh, you've bought businesses before. I, I've got another guest that's just joined us. Would you would you would you imagine that? Um, <laughs> and I think the two of you know each other, right? Do you remember Jordan from last year? From last year, yeah. I think I think you guys ended up having to end the show because I lost power or something, didn't I? Oh, I you know I don't know, Dave. Maybe. <laughs> Jordan, how are you today? Hi, you guys. That was a quick transition. I realized we were live, but uh, oh, yeah. well, this is how we catch people in embarrassing situations. Quickly <laughs> I think I was testing my mic. I don't know if you guys caught that. <laughs> okay, good. Hey, Rick, good to see you again. Hey, Jordan. So uh, for everyone listening, Jordan is a member of my Business Buyer Adventure Group Coaching Program and uh, is a multiple acquisition entrepreneur. Um how was 2021 for you? You last year you told us about how the pandemic was affecting your your language translation business. What kind of things happened for you in 21? Uh, well, I think the resilience of our industry really uh, shown in 2021. I work between languages, written, spoken, or signed, and people still needed to communicate uh, regardless of the pandemic and. Uh, a lot of our solutions, we had to pivot. People weren't meeting face-to-face, -face, which is one of the services we provide. They're meeting uh, like this via Zoom or uh, telehealth. And uh, so we were providing language solutions interpreters on this new remote uh, meeting setup that we had. So we pivoted and business uh, bounced back aggressively. There were a lot of uh, pent-up doctor's appointments or trips i think i right. caught the tail end of, of uh, your conversation with henry that uh travel uh started to pick up and so as the world kind of opened up uh a little more in 2021 so did our business bounce back it, it's interesting that you mentioned pent-up demands for things like appointments I, I read a newspaper article about that how um and and myself back in 2020 i was scheduled for a procedure in april and then when the lockdown happened in March, they canceled all the multi-day recovery, non-essential procedures at the hospital. Um, I actually ended up winning in that scenario because they called me because my procedure was like a three hour thing. And they said, our ORs are now empty and we're just trying to take people case by case that we can get in and out. So I actually got my procedure done a few weeks before it was supposed to be so done. Front, front of the line pass. Well, exactly. Well, precisely. But but those other people who you know would have a more than one day recovery, 
they've all got shuffled off into the future. And now there's this big backlog of this stuff that needs to be taken care of. And, um, and so your company helps in those situations where people need an interpreter. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's we work, uh, we're kind of the biggest little industry that nobody's ever heard of. Uh, and it, and it makes complete sense once you explain that we help people communicate across language barriers. And what about the acquisition front? You had looked at a couple of deals this year. Anything you want to share with us about that? Uh, well, I mean, not only has the world shifted, but also uh, uh, different industries benefited and others were really crushed uh, from this pandemic. There was, I don't think there was anyone in between. Uh, it was really, you did better or worse. Uh, what am I seeing in the acquisition side is uh, people that were burnt out and wanting to sell. Uh, you know, I'm buying uh, the same business, translation services companies. I've found a niche and I'm trying to replicate success each time, uh, kind of use this playbook, buy and improve and buy again. Uh, owners' expectations uh, have changed because of the pandemic uh, and because things have bounced back so aggressively. So people that were burnt out at the end of 2020 that I was talking to uh, might want to cling on for another one or two years and ride this rebound uh, and enjoy the cash flow. So that was a new change mm. as well as seeing a new competition enter the marketplace, uh, specifically in my industry. Uh, some people were flush with cash because of government programs or their business did well. And so what are they going to put their money into? Well, I'll buy it another business like mine. So I'm seeing uh, more competitors in my industry that are industry buyers like me. Well, and, and so have you noticed a difference in like, have you butted heads with one of these uh, other players in a deal that you've been looking at? Yeah, actually I have a funny story about that. It's uh, I definitely believe in a rising tide floats all uh, boats as they say. And uh, I'm not an expert, but I like to share at least the lessons that I'm learning. And so I'll go uh, to our industry conferences and give a talk on buying a business and the ins and outs of it. The benefit is uh, build my brand and rapport with other folks, potential sellers, but also rapport with some other buyers. And so you could say I'm kind of educating or inspiring my competitors. Um, and in a recent uh, opportunity, I found out somebody that attended my talk in Chicago uh, was bidding a lot higher than I was uh, on a deal. And so I wasn't going to get that one because they were a very uh, bullish offering a price that I just couldn't justify. So, huh. well, you know, sometimes it's okay if, if other people want to park their capital in that way because it means that mm -hmm. that money isn't necessarily available to compete with you on a, on a realistic deal you might find next. Sure. A silver lining. <laughs> <laughs> so Jordan, when you buy a business, are you, do you maintain the infrastructure or do you just take everything incorporated into your, your existing overhead and infrastructure? Great question. It's um, an evolving model and this is a good bolt on to uh, David. I think you were sharing your uh, business buyer adventure course. You've added how to buy a stock purchase or entity yep. as well as net normal working capital, right? Yep. So that's, that's part of our model as we do uh, stock purchases. 
uh, I, which is, I think, less common in the small um, business acquisition space, mainly for preserving the goodwill of contracts, the customers, and uh, the employees. I create friction on the two biggest assets that a service business has is you know, the client revenue stream and the people that know the clients and are performing the work. Uh, so this has been a great way to um, get into that deal and provide some tax advantages to the seller. Uh, so we do a stock purchase and we are a network of multiple brands. So within the teams, uh, we definitely believe we're one culture and one company, uh, but different employees will service different brands or customers and we centralize where it makes sense. So some of the things like back office and accounting can be centralized. We don't need duplication. Uh, and then sales and marketing, we're able to centralize some of the production. Uh, but usually where there's client connection, you can't really centralize that. So we have this hybrid model where it's one company and one culture, uh, but multiple brands in the marketplace. Yeah. The people in those markets know those brands, right? I mean, this is one of the key things that you're buying. And and I think one of the other critical things is that, you know, you talked about healthcare, but a lot of the work that you're doing are, are with, you know, like government and quasi-government sort of bodies. And if you go to them and ask them to update all the contracts with a new name, sometimes that might trigger a process on their end where maybe necessarily they might go out to bid again on some of that work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Some contracts specifically, they're not assignable yeah. and you need to speak with the client. And that would be something I encourage people to do is when you're buying a service business with contracts into the future is check if they're assignable and uh, what's the likelihood you're going to cause an issue uh, with buying the business and trying to get that contract to roll over to the you, the, the new buyer. You, you use a lot of subcontractors who actually do the interpretation work. Um, have you felt some of the pain from the labor shortage issues that are in the media all the time now? Uh, absolutely. I, I think it, it just shifted for everybody that is in the uh, workforce of what type of environment do I want to put myself in? What risks do I want to take? You know, what, what's the risk reward of taking this assignment or doing more work in this profession? Or do I need to switch into a different uh, profession? And in my industry, it's highly skilled labor uh, linguists that are professionally trained that have amazing mastery between languages. So it's not really blue collar work, right. but uh, that person does have other options. And so uh, let me give an example. Somebody who speaks uh, Urdu or Marshallese, some of these lesser common languages, maybe they're not really busy uh, with assignments because healthcare has dropped for a while and they decide to pursue a different profession. And so we've got shrinkage on my linguist pool and labor uh, pool. Uh, the, the other thing is uh, increased wages or increased rates. So we use subcontractors, they get to set their own rates. That's part of the benefit of being a sub. Uh, but the challenge is uh, how do we maintain profit margin uh, when there's less resources and the resources that are here uh, want to increase their rates. Mm. So definitely been a challenge to navigate that as well. 
And do you have the ability on the other end to push through some of those raising rising costs or are you constrained by some of those contracts you have? It's, it's case by case basis. Some contracts we just, we can't. Uh, another thing that I recommend, uh, and I didn't come up with this, but a wonderful attorney did in all of our service agreements, we have a clause uh, that states that within a year of uh, signing of our service agreement, we maintain the right to raise rates by 3% or more. And that was a blessing because we can go through and adjust uh, case by case where they've gone past that year. Mm -hmm. And as far as messaging, a 3% increase isn't much at all on the client side. Some people don't even realize it. And those that do give a little pushback, it's uh, very explainable with the situation we're in. With uh, right. Inflation is in the headlines, and so it's nothing new coming from us. So that does help. So, so I have another question to follow up on my last one, Jordan, if you don't mind. So, so sure. I've, bought, I've, I've acquired businesses. I've built businesses from scratch. And something that I've discovered over time is culture is kind of the collective attitude and behaviors of the group within the organization. And as an acquirer of the business, you come in kind of the stranger and kind of, kind of, kind of morph into their culture and hopefully get them to see the way you'd like the business to be run over mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. so, so that's my experience. I'm not saying that's the only experience, but, but when you say you come in with one culture, how do you, how do you metamorphosize that culture and from that acquired business into your way of doing things? Such a great question. And that's something that I think about as we've grown, you know, from four people when we started working, I think David, four or five of us to 22 of us now, yeah. uh, our problems have changed in motivating and uh, keeping people accountable. And uh, it's something that is an ongoing effort uh, really to sort of prune out some of the folks that are detractors and bring in new folks that are adding. Uh, we do have a, our mission and vision and uh, values. Uh, we use a system called EOS, Entrepreneur Operating System, really popular book. It's called Traction. I highly recommend mm -hmm. it. So that really helped to give us a foundation, at least, to say and communicate, this is what we're about as an organization. And based off of those values and the foundation, we can decide how we hire, fire, and reward. So that's one thing for just management, getting everyone bought in. Uh, but the other thing is there's zero trust on day one when you acquire a company. It doesn't matter what I say. It's probably more important what I don't say because they're watching. They need to watch and see what we do. So yeah. I, we could probably go on for a long time on this, but I think we're still a work in progress. But I look for quick wins is my my short answer. And I, I do one on ones with every single person. I ask them, "Tell me about you. Tell me why you work here. What do you love about the business? What do you hate about it? How can we make the place better?" And so that first conversation, I'm looking for just some quick ideas. Uh, I'll give you a silly example. Well, the coffee in our office has sucked for years. I would love, you know, Folgers or Tim Hortons, uh, special holiday blend. <laughs> and I take note because that's something I could do really quickly and it costs yeah. me a little more money. Uh, I didn't get but that. to win, the, <laughs> win the trust. So the other, um, I'll give you an example of the last acquisition we did. Uh, there were three people that were underpaid according to our brackets. 
they did the same job as other people in our two other companies and they were underpaid maybe 15%. And we could have just ignored it and rolled with it, but I didn't want the team to be talking and realize, hey, I, there's this discrepancy. Uh, what does that say about management, about how we run this company? And so we made the decision to increase on day one, everyone's salary by 15% that were below and said, I don't know you or your performance yet, but I assume that you're fantastic and we're going to give you a raise because it's the equitable thing to do. So that also helps to win uh, over people's trust and get them to start buying into some of uh, the values that we purport. Mm -hmm. And at what point did you discover the wage discrepancy? Was it before you did the acquisition or was it after? It was during uh, due diligence. And the question was, you know, looking at cash flow, especially in the beginning, how, how do we handle this? Could we you know, stair step it? Do we not address it at all? And that was our way of solving it is just on day one. Um, but there's probably a lot of other creative solutions that would mitigate cash flow crunch and getting people to an equitable pay bracket. Yeah. Yeah. The, I, I get questions from time to time from different people who want to take a, a big business analysis lens and apply it to these small businesses. And they mm -hmm. want to talk about numbers like rates of return and return mm -hmm. on equity and stuff like this. Mm -hmm. And so in this situation, you know, in due diligence, you discovered that there was an expense line that probably should have been bigger in the company you were looking at, which would mean that the cash flow isn't as good. And right. so from a strictly numbers point of view, it's very quick to say, well, well we can't pay them more or else the numbers won't work anymore. Mm -hmm. But when we're talking about people, we're talking about small business, the, right. the functioning of the thing, like, like what would it, you know, what's the cost of replacing three people when they get upset and leave? Right. 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 So it's, it's the functioning of the thing, making sure that it works, making sure that it's going, mm -hmm. you can, you can find another way to, to make some more money with mm -hmm. a happy, joyful team that wants to participate, mm -hmm. wants to help out and wants mm -hmm. to contribute. Uh, I think more so than you can, you know, applying the, the Ebenezer Scrooge management model um, mm -hmm. since, since we were in the holidays. Um, sure. So, I mean, those people probably now are going to share with any new people that come on your team the story of how, you know, you bumped them up because they were being underpaid by the previous person they worked for. And mm -hmm. it will become part of establishing that culture that you're building within the company that right. you're a place that treats people fairly. And, mm -hmm. you know, hopefully that goodwill will spread beyond those three individuals. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Very good. Uh, comparison with Ebenezer Scrooge management style. We're trying to not do, not do that. <laughs> how, how about you, Rick? What's your experience been in uh, just getting people on board, managing people and their, all their problems. It's messy, right? It's very messy. And I'll, I'll give you a, a really interesting case study on something. So my first business was a franchise breakfast restaurant. And after about three years, my wife left her job to come into the business. So we, we built a second business exactly like the first one. Same brand, same concept, same pricing, same town even. So she ran one, I ran another. But it was interesting about this, even though 
all things were the same except for the physical location and the employees, the culture was very different. And the culture was different. The only thing I can I attribute that to was the management and how the management dealt with the employees. And employees make the culture. There's no question. But management guides that ship. And, and the way my wife guided her ship was very different than the way I guided mine. And when we had employee shortages at one location or another, and we would just send one over to help out, uh, they would always come back and say, don't ever send me back there. It doesn't matter which way they went, right? Okay. If they went from my store to hers, they come back with that, with that feedback. They went from hers to mine, same feedback. And it was just com- complete night and day for them. And, and it was tough. It really was tough to manage that. And again, it comes down to the way I, I, I dealt with it. And she was more of a people person and every, it was always worried about what people thought. And, and I was like, get the job done. This is your job. This is what we expect to be done. Mm. If it's not being done that way, then we're going to have conversations about that. But it was like chop, chop time is on the line here. And I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. I mean, I cared about every single one of them and I treated them accordingly. And when things weren't busy, we would sit down and celebrate and, and have a bunch of fun. But, when we were busy, I was, I was all business. Right. And, and she didn't see it that way. So you had little oil and vinegar cultures. Exactly. And, and, and it's funny because I mean, we were sharing our businesses. So she was the primary caregiver and we had two little kids at home. So many times if the kids were sick or we couldn't get the babysitter or whatever, she would elect to stay home. And depending on my schedule, I may flip over to her store to manage her store if my number two was, was there in, in my restaurant and I'd walk into her store and it was just, I would always be pulling out my hair. Like, why isn't this done? Why can't we get this this way? Like, come on, let's go. And I always felt like, you know, it sounds like I was a bad guy, but it, it, it just, they didn't have the same sense of urgency that I had come to expect in, in the restaurant that we ran. In, in your business, I mean, what, what is always interesting to me about that breakfast restaurant is that it almost has some parallels to the nightclub industry because yeah. you were so dependent on what, like a five or six hour window Sunday morning was like the place where you made all your money. Uh, maybe you wow. can talk a little bit about that. Like was the execution of Sunday morning different between your restaurant and hers? Yes. Yes. What saved her was she had more seats. And, and because of her more seats, she was able to manage the line a little bit easier. And, uh, but you're absolutely right, Dave. There's about a five, not even five, I would say even closer to four hour window on Sunday. And it represented one third of our revenue for the week. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So you're either, you're, it's showtime in those four hours. There's no messing around. Right. And, and that's pretty much what it would come down to was if tables were dirty and they weren't getting turned over quick enough and people, the lineup was kind of going out the door, I would lose it because that's our money. And if yeah. we don't make it today, we don't get, you know, they don't show back up on Monday cause they couldn't eat at your restaurant on Sunday. And, uh, and it was, and I, my team had become very used to it in my other store and we would manage that line down to less than 10 people. And everyone was very well aware. I didn't have to say anything. They were, everyone was, was, they had signed on and bought into the idea that their lineups do not exist. And, yeah. and they didn't have that same sense of urgency. So, yeah. And I mean, and if you go one step further, Friday and Saturday represented another one third of our business for the week. So you take three days as two thirds of your business. And, and, you know, we live in Canada and there's snowstorms and all that. If you get a snowstorm in one of those three days, your week's shot. Maybe even your month is shot. Yeah. In terms of profitability. Wow. And so the rest of the week is, you know, just empty and 
you still had to be open. It's not empty, but you're, you're, you know, you're paying for your food and your labor and hopefully you're contributing a little bit to your overhead, but that's, you're just there. It's, it's cost of doing business to be open those days. Yeah. Well, gentlemen, we're, we're, we've, we've come to the end. Did you guys see the, the new opening that I had made? Oh, geez. So the uh, the casino let go of their guy who was doing all their stage productions for musicians and events and concerts and stuff. And so I was able to hire him. Check this out. This is the new opener for my YouTube channel. All right. Very. I'm David C. Barnett, and you're tuned in to Small Business and Dealmaking, the podcast, YouTube channel, and blog where I talk about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses while controlling risk. So if you're looking to take control of your future through buying a business one day, or if you already own a business and you're looking to grow or exit, you've come to the right place. I talk about interesting things. I talk to interesting people and I answer your questions every week right here. So be sure to hit like and be sure to hit subscribe and let's get to it. Well, what do you think? Reviews? Wow. Dave, when are you getting the call to Hollywood? I don't know. Uh, do they have COVID there? Uh, we need a next James Bond. You're going to give him a run for his money with that suit. <laughs> you, it's funny you say that, Jordan. Dave, pull up the, the the picture that you showed me and Henry a while ago. That's exactly oh. what I was thinking. I was like, that's so James Bond in jeans. <laughs> well, l- listen, I, 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 think, I think it's been a, a, a cool move because I've, I've been getting a lot of uh, positive feedback and and I'll tell you, I did an interview with Jeff Alpa. I had him on as a, a Monday night live stream. And um, the it, what he was saying in that video is that the way you look affects how you feel, affects how you perform, et cetera. I, I totally believe it. It's totally true. And I remember back, you know, earlier parts of my career when I was, uh, you know, out doing face-to-face sales for different businesses I worked in and I had like a jacket and a tie on and everything, like, you would feel it. And in fact, I've, I've been working at home offices now since, when did they move me? Well, since about two, 1999 is I think when I started working from home offices. And when I was younger, in order to get myself into the mindset of being at work, I used to have to get dressed even if I wasn't going to see a customer. I would get dressed with the tie on to sit in my home office and do my work, make phone calls and stuff. Just, yeah, shirt up, abdomen up. Well, I, I mean, I would just put the whole outfit on. Um, nowadays, I don't have to do that. Nowadays, I can be jeans and t-shirt in my home office, and I still have the discipline to like get my stuff done, do the work, go through the you know my files. But back in those days, there were always these distractions, and wearing the clothes actually made it easier to work. It's funny you say that because I have a friend who's from Morocco, and his dad's retired, still lives in Morocco, but this guy lives here. And um, he was telling me that his, one of the greatest lessons his dad taught him was when he retired, he kept in getting up every single morning, having a shower, brushing his teeth and putting on nice clothes, even though he never left the house. And so my friend was like, well, why would you do that? And he's like, because otherwise I'm going to fade away and I have to be I have to feel good. And, and if I go out for a coffee, I'm already ready, dressed and ready to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Listen, fellas, thanks so much for for coming today. Uh, it's been a blast. This is the third uh, Christmas Eve special that I've done. And uh, I, I'm having a lot of fun. I think I'm going to keep doing it. 
uh, kids are with their mom. So if, if it wasn't for, uh, for you guys, I don't know what I'd be doing today. Probably <laughs> freezing in the cold outside somewhere. So thanks for helping me to keep things warm and cozy and for helping to create something uh, for people to tune into uh, over the holidays when they have a little bit of downtime. Yeah, great content, great guests. It's it's been a good tradition, David. Yeah, yeah I think so. I think so. Rick, uh, if people want to reach out to you, if they're interested in maybe having you work with them uh, from your marketing or your restaurant consulting point of view, how can they reach you? Easiest way is Rick Nicholson. Uh, I, I don't have my last name up here like you guys, but it's N-I-C-H-O-L-S-O-N at wizardofads.com. And in the show notes, I put a link to your LinkedIn profile. Okay. So perfect. if people want to dig up the show notes, they can click over to your LinkedIn profile. They can send you a connection request and find you that way too. And Jordan, uh, where can people find out more about you and your company? Yeah, please uh, find me on LinkedIn as well. I think that's a great uh, network. And then uh, I've been a part of Twitter for over a decade and I reinvesting in being on that platform. And I'm amazed at the content and people you can engage with. So you can find me on Twitter because that's my resolution for this next year is to be sharing and engaging with folks. What's your uh, Twitter handle? Find business at, at Jordan P Evans at no.com at Jordan P Evans. At Jordan P Evans. I'll put it in the show notes as well. Um, listen guys, thank you very much. We've got a few other people saying uh, that they've uh, enjoyed the broadcast today. Um, thanks Eric. I appreciate you too for watching and um Willamette uh, Property Services. I didn't get into a holiday chat, but I'll be in your queue for consulting in mid-January. Well, thanks. We love to have customers. That's that's what business is all about. <laughs> all right, guys. Uh, thank you very much. And uh, I will talk with both of you shortly. And uh, we'll see everybody else uh, in the new year, probably. And remember, if you haven't already, and if you just watch on YouTube, sign up for my email list, davidcbarnett.com. Those holiday chat calls start getting released tomorrow. There are nine of them. They're awesome this year. Um, and the ones from prior years are awesome too. And don't forget, if you have not enrolled into Business Buyer Advantage yet, now's the time to do it because there's going to be a price change in 2022. There's a special bonus that's in there. Uh, a recording of my appearance in Toronto in 2020 is in there only until the 2nd of January. And the new modules are in there with respect to share purchases and net net normal position in working capital, which is a mouthful, but it's really important if you're going to buy a business. And with that, I'll say see you later and uh, talk to you soon. So how can you learn more about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses? Easy. Head over to my blog site, davidcbarnett.com, where you can learn more about me and how I work with my clients. You can learn more about my books and the online courses that I've prepared for you. You can find out about how to subscribe to my email list, the YouTube playlists, etc. There's literally hundreds of hours of content there, all for free, and I'd love for you to be my guest. Special thanks go out to Jeff Alpaw Customs for being my tailor. Men all around the world can look dangerous, just like me, with the help of Jeff Alpaw Customs. JeffAlpaw.com. Use the code DCB10 to save. They handle multiple currencies and ship anywhere you happen to be.